When you hear the term priest, what do you think of? More than likely, what you think of is related to church and your faith, a minister, a member of the clergy, pastor. Some think of it positively as a person representing God to them and representing them to God. Others may have some negative feelings about priests and the priesthood. So what is a priest and what did and what does a priest do? Well, in this episode of the Discover the Word podcast, we're going to talk about that. And our hope is that next time someone asks you that question, you know, what comes to mind when you hear the term priest? What pops into your mind is Jesus. Yeah, Jesus, the priest, is the subject of these conversations on Discover the Word. Welcome to Discover the Word, the small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries. Great to have you at the table, or actually on the Zoom call with Mark DeHaan, Elisa Morgan, Bill Crowder, and Daniel Ryan Day. And uh, Bill is going to be leading this study that is based in the New Testament book of Hebrews. Over the course of five conversations, we're going to study Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, through chapter 5, verse 10 and explore how that section of scripture can shape our understanding of how this term priest really is an important one for us as followers of Jesus today. And it looks like the group's ready to get started. So let's listen as Bill guides them into these conversations about Jesus, the priest. For those of us who have trusted Christ, um, there are a lot of different ways that we describe him or the different roles that he carries out. What are some of those titles or roles that we kind of think of when we think of Jesus? Savior. Yeah. And that's what Jesus means. Yeshua, he will save us from our mm -hmm. sins. So mm -hmm. yeah, great. I tend to go back to Isaiah and that string of descriptors, wonderful counselor, almighty God, mm -hmm. prince of peace. And along with counselor, I think of teacher. Mm -hmm. We think of him as being mm -hmm. our model, our example. Then he self-describes himself as um, the light of the world, the yeah. bread of life. That's right. Some other metaphors he uses. We sometimes think of him as Lord, mm -hmm. creator, shepherd. And I think you're right, Daniel. For many of us, the first thing we do think of is Savior. But it's interesting that one of the most important roles that Jesus plays for us right now, in this moment, not in Bible days and not in future days uh, of the end times, but right now at this moment, one of the titles that the scriptures give to Jesus that we don't think about as often is the title of priest. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's not as front of mind, and yet in some ways it probably should be because it's our present reality. And I'd like for us to explore it this week. So some of us come from different traditions where the language of priesthood is more familiar. Are you in that boat or are you in the boat where it's a less familiar language? I'm in a boat where it's very familiar. And uh, my family's been connected with the Anglican Church for a while now, and I serve in the Anglican Church. And so that language of priest and priesthood is very familiar. Seems like the churches that I've been in find it very comfortable to speak of him as our high priest. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But usually it seems like the high priest is emphasized. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. I think in general Protestantism, there's been some discomfort even with the term. And I'm not sure of all the whys and wherefores there. But when we read in the book of Hebrews, which, you know, is probably one of the strong languages mm -hmm. about that, Jesus feels very approachable as a priest, as the mm -hmm. high priest, as you're talking about. So I, I'm really grateful for these conversations because sometimes we can push concepts aside if they are unfamiliar and miss the richness that God might be inviting us into in his word. Sure. In much of the free church realm, which is what much of Protestantism is, one of the reasons why the language of priest is not as familiar is because of the commitment to the concept of the priesthood of the believer, mm -hmm. that each follower of Christ is themselves a priest who can represent themselves to God. And that's true. Uh, but it's also true that in the Old Testament, there were priests. Mm -hmm. And what was their function? 
to represent people before God, you know, which yeah. you're saying we now can do because of Jesus' act mm-hmm. on the cross. We now, as Peter says, we are a royal priesthood, mm-hmm. a people mm-hmm. belonging to God. Sure. How close is it, Bill, to the idea of mediator, the priest in a mediatorial role? It's exactly that, uh, especially in our context today, because in the Old Testament context, priests basically had two roles. One was mediatorial, like you're saying, Mark, but the other was offering sacrifices. Mm-hmm. And today, in the tangible, physical sense of the idea, priests don't offer that kind of sacrifice today. But in those uh, church traditions where priests are still seen as roles to be filled by individuals, they still do carry out that mediatorial role in kind of an add-on. I don't think they would deny that we have access to God in and of ourselves, but what they would say is, but this is a priest who can also go to God on your behalf. And mm-hmm. so I think you're right, Elise. I think sometimes we discard ideas too quickly because we get a little bit threatened by them because of our own traditions. But um, when we think of Jesus as our priest, I think we step into a whole new level of mediation. Paul told Timothy there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, right? And that he is on our behalf at the right hand of the Father. Hebrews says, making intercession for us. So this idea of Jesus as priest, I think, is a very present idea and one worth exploring for us. And We want to do that by looking at more verses than we usually try and tackle in a series of conversations on the program. But because of the emphasis in the book of Hebrews on the priesthood of Jesus, it would be good to take a swing at this and see what we could mine out of it. So in order to do that, let's get some background on the letter to the Hebrews. What are some things we know and don't know about the letter to the Hebrews? Well, we don't know for sure who wrote it. Is that an issue, do you think? It is for some people, okay. but in my opinion, I don't think it needs to matter. Hmm. If we believe all Scripture is God-breathed and has been given to us by God, then I think we can trust the book of Hebrews as part of his given Scriptures to us, whether we know the human author or not, because quite candidly, Hebrews isn't the only book we don't know the author yeah. for, right? Mm, yeah, there's true. debate mm-hmm. on some of the books that have somebody's name attached to it, whether they wrote <laughs> those books. Yeah, and, that's right. You know, I think that's where we have a gift because the church for so long has read and accepted these as different than other books that have been written. And so that's where I find comfort, Mark, in your question yeah. is the fact that for generations and generations, people have said, you know, there's something different about this book to the mm-hmm. Hebrews and we need to keep it, and we need to keep reading it. And um, so I think in that way, there's some weight as well, the, ch- the tradition of the church. Okay, so now that we've talked about who didn't write it, uh, <laughs> that's right. who are they not writing it to? <laughs> I guess it's uh, written to Jewish Christians, people mm-hmm. who followed Christ, um, but they were struggling. And one thing that's hitting me, Bill, as we're talking is that because there's such a, a strong and actually beautiful section describing Jesus as our priest in this book that we're unsure exactly who wrote, that maybe adds to our hesitancies to understand this priest role. I want to see yeah. what you're, you're going to do with that to yeah. help us here. Yeah. I think, first of all, you're exactly right. Hebrews is not easy anyway. Hebrews, mm. I think, is one of the toughest books in the New Testament, but that's what makes it so worthwhile to study it mm. because it mm-hmm. is challenging. So, What makes it challenging, Bill? Well, because it is written to a Jewish audience as opposed to a Gentile audience like us. It carries a lot of overtones from Judaism, from Jewish liturgy, from Jewish thinking, from parallels to the Old Testament. All of those things are so pervasive in there. And quite frankly, for the average Christ follower in the church today in the West, we don't spend very much time in the Old Testament. We might plunge in there every now and then to read about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego or something. But I mean, we really don't understand Judaism and the foundations that some of that gives to even our faith. So it's hard to get our head back into what was going on when this letter was written, right? Yeah, and and it was written to Jewish believers for whom all of these things would have been front of mind mm-hmm. because they were not that far removed from Judaism. But because they were under persecution, because they were under stress, 
they're on the verge of maybe waffling a little bit about whether they're going to carry on. And that's what makes Mm -hmm. this very first statement we want to see so important as the writer launches into this. So, uh, Daniel, would you read Hebrews 4, verse 14, just to get us rolling? Sure. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. Okay, now let's look at the last part first. Let us hold fast our confession. That's a weird phrase, yeah. Yeah, it's a weird (laughs) phrase for us. But again, what he's trying to do is reinforce the fact that there are good reasons for you to stay true to the faith that you've embraced in Christ. My translation here says, uh, hold firmly. Yeah, 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 don't let it slip. Why should we hold fast? Well, we should hold fast because we have a great high priest. Mm -hmm. That's a concept they understood. They understood that they had in Judaism a great high priest who was the ultimate representation of the nation to God, the one who would offer Day of Atonement sacrifices once a year, all those things. But now what he says is we have an even better high priest because he's Mm -hmm. not on earth. He's not in the temple. It says he is what? Passed through the heavens. Passed through the heavens. Mm. And he's not just another guy that grew up in Judaism. This is the son of God who is the high priest. Good point. And in that name, we have both the humanity and the deity of Christ. Jesus is kind of his human name, but the Son of God is his title as deity. So Jesus, the Son of God, is our high priest. And oh, by the way, he doesn't have to go into the Holy of Holies in the temple to represent us toward God. He's right there with God Mm -hmm. at the right hand. And that means there's reason for you to hold fast because you have a mediator, to use the word Mark reminded us of earlier. You have a representative. You have an advocate who stands by the side of our Father, representing us all the time. Can you see how that could have been encouraging to them? Sure. It's. It, am I saying this right? It's like we have access to God because Jesus gives us access to God, direct access. And this is very different. Yeah. Yeah, compared to any other priest Mm -hmm. that the people would have been familiar with. Yeah, and, you know, we'll find out as we get into our conversations on this that their experience with priests were not always perfect experiences. (laughs) Yes, we know that, yes. (laughs) The priests were kind of a mixed bag. However, mixed bag in what sense, Bill? A mixed bag in terms of motives, in terms of. Uh, how they treated the people that they were supposed to represent. Well, they were human. They, yeah. yeah, how they lived out the things that they were supposed to be representing. I mean, there are so many areas where the human priests showed all the flaws and frailties that we would expect a human to express. Mm. That's not our priest. <laughs> mm-hmm. He's not in a building. He's at the right hand of God. He's not a human being filled with sin who's going to fail you. He is Jesus, the Son of God, who has passed through the heavens. Be encouraged. Hold fast. You can trust him as your representative and priest. Okay, all of us, and especially, you know, during the season of COVID, there was uh, an even heightened awareness of how many people suffered loss during that season of time. But all of us suffer loss, and all of us have loved ones and friends who've suffered loss. So my question is this. When you have someone you care about who has suffered loss, how do you communicate sympathy to them? Sometimes a text message, sometimes a phone call, and sometimes, when possible, just spending time with them. Mm-hmm. 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 You know, one of the things that comes to my mind is if the loss has been very, very painful I'm preoccupied with trying to figure out what can I do to not make it worse. Yeah. You know? And then we sometimes can get all tongue tied, can't we, Mart? It's like, I don't yeah. want to make it worse, so I won't do anything. Yeah, you know? and, right. And then that makes it worse. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. You know, I'm with you, Daniel. I, um, I try to reach out in some way, some way that's true to the relationship yeah. I have with a person. Sometimes it's a somebody I don't know that well, and I might send a card, and then I really am careful to, about the mm. words in the card. Mm. Sometimes if it's somebody I know really well, I might text and say, when's a good time I could call? You know, it's tricky, but it's it's a tightrope a little bit, like you were saying, Mart. I don't want to do nothing because that mm. communicates bad stuff. Yeah. Mm. 
And I think your comment, Elisa, that it has to be true to the relationship is really important because we might do different things with different people to express the same feelings just because that's the nature of our relationship. Mm -hmm. What I'd like to put out there is that apparently we're not very good at this. Because uh, in, doing some, yeah, in doing some <laughs> oh. research, I found that there are entire websites devoted to uh, sympathy statements that you can copy and paste oh into goodness. a note in, for those times when you just don't know what to say. There are a whole lot of times we don't know what to say. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think about the the instance of Job and his three friends. I mean, they sat with him saying nothing for seven days and were big help, and then they started talking and made a mess out of things. So now what's interesting is that when we think of the word sympathy, we almost always go to a season of loss. Mm -hmm. But sympathy has two definitions. One covers that. It's feelings of pity and sorrow for someone else's misfortune. But the second definition is where I really want us to lock in for a second because it means understanding between people or common feeling. And I think that idea of common feeling is really important, even when we're showing sympathy to someone who's experiencing loss. Hmm. My dad died 40 years ago, and that gave me some emotional currency to deal with as a pastor when I would be doing funerals with people in the church, and especially when people had lost their father. I felt a strong Mm -hmm. connection because there was a common feeling there, and and I I felt like it helped me to serve them better in those Mm -hmm. times. This idea of sympathy is common feeling is where we want to go next because we started in our first conversation talking about Jesus as our priest, and because he is our great high priest, God and man who has passed through the heavens we can be encouraged to hold fast to our trust in him, okay? Okay. Now the second one, we're going to see another aspect of Jesus as our priest, and we're going to see how we can respond as a result of that. So, Elisa, if you would read Hebrews 4, verses 15 and 16. I love these verses. They're some of the first ones I came to know as a, a new believer. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in times of need. Okay, arguably the two most familiar verses in the book of Hebrews, Mm -hmm. and for good reason, because there's so much comfort and so much encouragement there, but all of that encouragement is linked into what my seventh grade English grammar teacher would call a double negative. We do not have one who cannot. Uh, So Mm. what that means is we do have one who can. (laughs) And it actually makes more sense that way. We saw in our first conversation that the human priests that these Jewish believers were familiar with weren't always everything that a priest should be. And you get the feeling that maybe the writer's kind of dipping his toe into that water a little bit because he's saying the kind of priest we have is different, (laughs) different from anything you've ever experienced because why? You know, I I tripped over that because, you know, we say that Jesus experienced all that we do. I think that's hard to believe Mm -hmm. because he didn't have the same kinds of struggles that we do. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, the, the kind of priest they had they did have the kind of struggles we do. But they often weren't very sympathetic anyway. The problem is not just the experience of the priest, but whether the priest is able to sympathize with the people in their struggles. And and the priests in that day, uh, history tells us, and even we see hints of it in the scriptures, they had almost formed a kind of a first century Jewish aristocracy. Mm-hmm. Many of them were extremely wealthy, They lived a totally different life than the kind of life lived by the common people. And so when the common people came to them, there was none of that common feeling that we were talking about earlier. Now think about that in contrast to how Jesus lived and his example of how he lived. I mean, he Mm -hmm. was viewed as a commoner, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mm -hmm. not only that, but some of his conflict with the religious leaders, with the priests of that day, were often over things that those priests felt like they were doing really well. Mm-hmm. And Jesus is challenging them with the idea that you're completely missing it. 
on the outside you're white and clean and think you have it all together and on the inside you're like a dead person with it yeah. uh, like mm-hmm. a tomb yeah yeah now to your point mart i don't want to get too far away from that because you make a really good point and i think it's a point that's often misunderstood the point that well but he wasn't tested like we are because he didn't sin. I came across, and it's a little bit lengthy, but bear with me. I came across a quote from C.S. Lewis, who I think puts this in really, really good context for us. And Daniel, I gave this to you in advance. Would you mind reading that quote uh, from C.S. Lewis on this exact subject that you're talking about, Mark? Sure. Just out of curiosity, before I read, where was this quote? Where did he write it or say it? I think or? it's from Mere Christianity. Okay. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. Hmm. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means, the only complete realist. Wow, that's really good. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's really good. I mean, he might not have been tested in the exact details of the exact kinds of tests, but He was tested in everything humanity experiences, and because he did not sin, he experienced a much fuller sense of that temptation that we ever will. Mm -hmm. And that's why in the second part of this, in verse 16, we get the implication. The reality is we have a high priest who can sympathize because he's been there far more intensely than we ever will be. And because of that, We can go to God in prayer, right? Read verse 16 again, Elisa. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It really spotlights our predicament. Mm. (laughs) You know, the fact that we have fallen into temptation. And I've been listening and processing this. I'm just kind of like chewing on what we're talking about. And I'm thinking there is an enormous regret that happens when we sin. I mean, if we allow the Holy Spirit to convict us, which we're suggesting Jesus didn't have to carry, but we do. And so to see the the way out that he provides, which makes me think of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 10, you know, that there's a way out of temptation, he'll provide it for us. You know, I just think that's just so encouraging mm-hmm. that he can sympathize, but he also gives us mercy and grace. Mm. And when we sin, that sense of regret that you're talking about, Elisa, when we sin, sometimes the sense of unworthiness that comes upon us can make us feel like, well, I can't go to God. I can't come into his presence. I can't be like this. But what the writer is saying is it is in those moments that we need to know we can have confidence because our high priest understands. Yeah. He understands. Yeah, and I think the other thing that this really spotlights is God's response, Bill, because one of the things that as you were describing how we feel often and we're scared to come before God, it's that fear of not just our own inadequacy, but also scared of how God's going to respond. And because of Jesus experiencing the full weight of temptation, There's mercy and sympathy and grace (laughs) that is the response that God has toward us because he can understand what it is that we really have dealt with. And so what I love about these verses and this characteristic of Jesus as our high priest is that it takes away all the fear of approaching Mm -hmm. God because God's response is not going to be you foolish, stupid human being Mm -hmm. who gave in. Instead, it's here's my mercy and my grace to help Mm -hmm. you not only uh, with forgiveness, but also to be able to overcome this temptation and to experience the full life that I have for you. Yeah, isn't it comforting to know that in those difficult moments, Jesus understands he's been there. We don't have to hesitate going to him because uh, he'll lift us back up when we stumble. 
Well, this series is called Jesus the Priest here on Discover the Word, exploring a passage in Hebrews chapters four and five together that gives insight into Jesus being our great high priest. So would you say you respond better to someone who is gentle and caring or someone who is harsh and demanding? Well, Bill, Elisa, Mart, and Daniel talk about another aspect of Jesus being our priest after this quick break. Discover the Word is just one aspect of Our Daily Bread Ministries. In addition to podcasts and radio, we also have video and print and internet materials that make the life-changing story and wisdom of the Bible understandable and accessible to people all around the world. And during this study of a section of the New Testament book of Hebrews, I would like to connect you with one of our other resources that I think you'll find helpful from our Library of Discovery series Bible study booklets called Knowing God Through Hebrews. Now, the Discovery series is a collection of online and in some cases printed short Bible study guides on biblical topics. And this particular booklet is a great overview of this important New Testament letter. Hebrews can be a little imposing and complicated to read, but you'll have no doubt what it's about after you've read Knowing God Through Hebrews. We have a link on our website, discovertheword.org, or you can go directly to discoveryseries.org and have access to the entire library. But because you study with us on Discover the Word, I do think you'll be helped by Knowing God Through Hebrews. And now, chapter 3 of this episode about Jesus the Priest. Sometimes, and some people might refer to it as tough love or whatever, but sometimes it's necessary for us to be firm with people. What are some examples of that? Actually, straight went to my dog, which is not a person. (laughs) But my dog needs boundaries, and he needs to obey me and not jump on people, (laughs) etc. Well, he's a person to you, right? Coach is a person to you, yeah. A little bit of a person, yeah. I know it's important at times to be firm, but this is one of those things that if my wife was sitting here, she would say, you know, you probably shouldn't answer this question because I tend not to be very firm, um, especially with my kids. I mean, there's times... Are you the play parent, Daniel? I tend to be the play parent. Yeah. I mean, there's times where something they're doing is put them in direct danger and I'm very firm and clear to protect them. Those just happen to be pretty rare nowadays (laughs) because of the ages of my kids. (laughs) Yeah. Sometimes too, just when you're being taken advantage of, Mm. For me, it's easier. I'm a little bit with Daniel here. It's easier just to kind of keep going, just forget it. Mm-hmm. Don't yeah. make an issue out of it. But, uh, you know, when we don't stand up to those who take advantage, then they're likely to do it to somebody else too. So, And that's a good outward view. It's not just what somebody's doing to me. It's what they could do to someone else and mm-hmm. to try to, to prevent future issues. I think it's really important. I think that's one of the things like uh, anybody who's ever been in leadership in an organization Mm -hmm. and you've had to deal with a difficult employee, it's not only for their sake or your sake, but Mm -hmm. it's for the sake of their coworkers as Mm -hmm. well, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Sometimes being firm is a very necessary thing, but there are also times that call for gentleness. And I'm not talking about being the play parent at this point, but I'm talking about being gentle. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the occasions that might call for that kind of thing? I think about babies, children, or, or young, young children, or people who've been wounded, mm-hmm. people who are ill or disabled in mm-hmm. some way. Sure. And honestly, most of the times, the way that we confront someone on something, it's going to be much more effective if it is gentle than if it's firm. I mean, there's absolutely times we have to be firm, but most of the time when we do have a difficult person that we're dealing with or something, by responding to them with gentleness and kindness, even if we ultimately call them out on whatever it is, it tends to be better. Yeah, Paul talked about that in Galatians chapter 6, about if a brother's overtaken in a fault, deal with them with a spirit of gentleness. Mm-hmm. So that, that's good, Daniel. Mark? Yeah, the question comes to mind is, are they two different things? Because I'm almost wondering whether or not the kind of firmness we need still has to be gentle. 
and the gentleness we need still needs to be firm. So, yeah. so maybe we're talking about two sides of the same coin in a sense here. But I want us to get to the gentleness piece in particular because surprisingly, and I'd never seen this before until preparing for these talks together, we've talked a lot about the human priests that Judaism experienced and that as humans, they often fell short, sometimes in very, very bad ways. Mm -hmm. But the expectation of those priests, I think, was setting a very high bar. And we find that in Hebrews chapter 5. We've been looking this week at Jesus as our priest and seeing how he's the perfect high priest and what we can do in response to him because he is our priest. And Today we come to Hebrews 5, verses 1 through 3, and I want you to listen to how not Jesus as the high priest is described, but how every high priest is described. And in light of every high priest, Jesus can do this to perfection, which no human priest could. So, Mark, would you read for us Hebrews 5, verses 1 through 3? Okay, verse 1. Every high priest is a man chosen to represent other people in their dealings with God. He presents their gifts to God and offers sacrifices for their sins. And he's able to deal gently with ignorant and wayward people because he himself is subject to the same weaknesses. And that's why he must offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for theirs. Now, did you see that little <laughs> thing in the middle there that just kind of it popped for me when I was looking through this and I was thinking, wow. I see the priests, especially the way they're presented in the Gospels and in the book of Acts, the priests of Judaism, and the word gentleness doesn't exactly come to mind, mm -hmm. does it? No. Especially in their dealings with Jesus himself. Mm -hmm. So the expectation was, your priest is just as frail as you are. Your priest is just as subject to sinful tendencies as you are. Therefore, he ought to be gentle with you. Mm -hmm. Would this be a new thought to the Jewish audience? Because we've talked before about how the priestly class was set up royally, if you will, mm -hmm. above the people. And is the writer of Hebrews undoing some of that old thinking, comparing the earthly priests to Jesus here, as mm -hmm. he's just talked about how Jesus was without sin in the verses mm -hmm. prior? Yeah, I'm thinking through just the, the whole story of the Bible and the track record of priests was broken from pretty early on in the way that they interacted with people. You know, I think back with Samuel, right, who is the last judge. He ends up in a very broken household as he's learning, supposedly learning what it's supposed to be to be a priest mm -hmm. as he's under the leadership of Eli and Eli's sons. And so they may not have been experiencing it as much in that time when the book of Hebrews is written, but they would know their history well enough to probably know that there's a broken track record of how priests have acted mm -hmm. in the past. So there's more contrast here yeah. in these words and descriptions, Jesus compared to the earthly priests. Yeah. Uh -huh. I'll bet it was a mixed bag, though. You know, in our day, you've got people, spiritual leaders who are very compassionate, and you've got others who are just, you know, cold as steel. That's right. And I'll bet you in the time of the New Testament as well as in the Old, I'll bet there were priests who really had a heart for the people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's another bunch of them that were just in it to see what mm -hmm. they could get out of it themselves. Thanks. Thanks. Sure. It helps. Yeah. And I really believe that if nothing else, and I think everything y'all are saying makes really good sense, but I think if nothing else, I think these Jewish followers of Christ, in answer to your question, Elisa, would have understood that this was supposed to be the ideal. Yeah, for sure. The degree to which different people were able to live up to that ideal may have been uh, okay. variegated. Mm -hmm. But I think they would have understood, yeah, that's exactly the way a priest should be because of the good reason that he gives. Because he also is beset with weakness. You know, When mm -hmm. he offers sacrifices, it's not just for your sin, it's for his sin too. Mm -hmm. So there should be a gentleness. There should be that tenderness of understanding in that priest Mm -hmm. So the question is, how does Jesus perfectly fulfill that aspect of it? And frankly, the writer to Hebrews doesn't give us this. We have to go back to Jesus' own words of how he represents himself in Matthew eleven twenty-eight and 29. Elisa, would you read that for us? Mm -hmm. I love these verses too, how putting them together. Hmm. Come to me, 
all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Now think about that. All of the human priests that these folks had ever dealt with had probably, because they were humans, at one time or another disappointed them or maybe treated them harshly in a time when they needed gentleness or something like that. Now here comes Jesus, our great high priest, the one who is both God and man, the one who's been tested in everything we are yet without sin, the one who sympathizes with us. He does not have those weaknesses in the same way that human priests do. When he offered a sacrifice on the cross, he did not offer that for his own sins, but for ours. Mm. And so in some ways, you could say that Jesus is the strongest person in the universe, Mm. and yet he presents himself in the gentlest way. Mm. Now, if you're these Jewish believers hearing this letter, trying to encourage them to hold fast to their faith in Jesus, how does this encourage you? That's a real draw. Mm-hmm. And the real draw, Mart, is the invitation that began those verses Elisa read. What were the first three words of those verses? Come to me. Come to me. Mm-hmm. There's the draw, right? Yeah. And the pop, too, is we don't understand gentleness as Jesus is expressing it. We think mm-hmm. it's wimpy stuff. And the reality is, it's as I understand it, it's strength under control. Mm-hmm. It's what we started this conversation with, the need to be firm Mm -hmm. in a loving manner. And I'm thinking about how much of a contrast Jesus is, to your point, Elisa, of strength under control, how much of a contrast that is between the way he acts as God versus the culture at this time and the pictures of gods that they would have had around them. Mm -hmm. The last Mm -hmm. thing you would use to describe Roman or Greek gods is gentleness and humbleness. Mm. And yet here is Jesus presenting himself that way. And because of that, that fear, again, that we would typically have in approaching God is gone because the response of the God is not strength, power, might, and smiting, but instead strength under control through gentleness and humility. Yeah, and if I made a fool of myself and I'm full of shame, I'm broken, I'm, I'm begging for mercy, I'll bet even though it is strength under control, it's just going to feel like everything we've ever needed at that point. Yeah. His gentleness will be the perfect gentleness, (laughs) which means that he will know exactly how firm he needs to be with us when firmness is required, and also exactly how gentle he needs to be with us when gentleness is required. And I like what you said, Daniel. We fear God in the right sense of the word fear of reverence and worship and wonder, but we don't have to be afraid of him. Mm. And I think in that sense, because Jesus is gentle, we can come to him. Now, he's still God. We don't trivialize that. We don't trivialize him. We don't minimize him. He's still God, but he's gentle. Mm. <laughs> and that welcomes him. And I'm sitting here thinking as one of those first century Jewish believers who's been thinking about abandoning the faith and thinking, man, you know, I've come so close to turning my back on him. What would he say? Well, he's gentle. Come to him. Mm. Be restored. Be refreshed. Let him strengthen you to hold fast to your confession because he's gentle. And that is such a comforting takeaway from that conversation because uh, we all mess up and we all need a generous measure of God's gentleness. We don't have to be afraid of approaching him. We can do that boldly because we can be assured that he is our gentle priest, sometimes firm, but always in a gentle way. Well, the dictionary defines a mystery as something that is difficult or impossible to understand or explain. And in a lot of ways, that term applies to what the group will be talking about in this next segment of the podcast, mystery. And to be honest, there are lots of them in the Bible, lots of them related to Jesus. So Bill, what are you thinking? I think one of the most mysterious events in the life of Jesus was the Garden of Gethsemane. Do you feel that way? And if you do, why? And if you don't, why not? I feel like those are big statements when it comes to Jesus, that it's the most mysterious 
because thinking through his life and just how many different things he did that I still read today after many, many years of reading them, and I just don't get, I agree that it's very mysterious. How about that? Yeah. How about smushing God into a woman's womb? Yeah. In a baby. There's a lot of mysterious stuff with Jesus. You're right. But that one is not only mysterious, because it sure is, it's just deeply troubling and heavy it makes me want to cry every time I, every time I read yeah. it or think about it. Okay, I'm still stuck <laughs> in the mysterious things that he said over and over again. But what is it that you find so mysterious? Well, I want us to explore that in this conversation. But one of the things that makes it so mysterious to me is that Jesus, in his own words, said, I always do only the things that please the Father. He had been sent on a mission of rescue that was going to involve the cross, yet in the Garden of Gethsemane, he very clearly seems to want release from that. That's mysterious to me, how within the person of the God-man, there was this struggle that seems to be taking place. And I don't know how to quantify it. Maybe that's what makes it mysterious to me, Mark. But in his humanity, that part of it doesn't seem mysterious. No, but again, you know, we want to make sure we don't dichotomize Jesus. We don't want to get mm-hmm. into the, he had two natures. No, he, he was God and man. He yeah. was human nature and divine nature at the same time. And so even though that's usually exactly what I retreat to to try to solve the mystery <laughs> in my own mind, yeah. I also know that if I push it too far, I end up in a bad place. Mm. Yeah, because at the end of the day, you want to look at Jesus and be like, yep, but that's why you're here. Right. Like, why are we having this conversation? Because at the end of the day, like, this is what your whole existence has been about, right? Is to lead to this moment. But don't we all have those moments, Daniel, Mm -hmm. when we know Mm -hmm. what we're supposed to be doing and we're completely convinced of our connection to God, but we howl out in our humanity. And I think it's one of the most vivid moments that we know of in Scripture of Jesus' reality that Mm -hmm. he is both God and man. I think there's something of a paradox in the whole idea of the incarnation Mm. that is itself, to your point earlier, Daniel, probably the greatest mystery. The greatest mystery is how God and man combine into one unique personage that is both human and divine at the same time. And, And I think it is that mystery of the incarnation that feeds into whatever it is that's happening in the garden that, at least for me personally, is so hard to get my mind around. And That's going to be the next place I think we go in our look at Hebrews for these conversations. And we've been looking at Jesus as our high priest. And what are some of the things we've seen so far? We started by just talking about how a high priest in Israel's history was a mediator that went between the people and God and how they had a high priest that was human and experienced brokenness and how much better it is for the whole world, that Jesus is now our high priest because he's both perfect, but he's also God. And the beauty is that he's sympathetic. He's he's all of that, and yet he cares for us. Mm. And then he really woos us to come close. You know, we've talked about he was tempted, yet he didn't sin. He understands Mm -hmm. our weakness, and he deals with us gently. Our tendency when we sin is to run from God. I mean, it starts way back in the garden. We want to hide from Mm -hmm. God. But Jesus woos us forward, you know, to once and for all redeem us from that pain of doing it wrong. Yeah, it's almost like he's setting up the opposite, Elisa. Like our tendency is when we sin to run away from God. And the whole point of this conversation so far in some ways has been, no, no, when you sin, run to God. Yeah. (laughs) And as our great high priest, Jesus is uniquely able to make that possible for us. Remember in the upper room, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Well, that's what a priest did. A priest, in a sense, as we saw in an earlier conversation, gives access to God through them. We have access through them. And so we have access to the Father through Jesus. And in the incarnation, God becoming man, he's uniquely qualified. He can go into the presence of God because he's God, but he can represent us into the presence of God because he became a man. Mm. And all of this feeds into everything we've been looking at. And We want to pick it up today and see yet another aspect that I think, not everybody agrees, I'll put that out there and we'll talk about it more in a minute, but I think it speaks into the Gethsemane moment. 
So as we come back into our text in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 4 through 6, we left off in our last conversation with verse 3. Verses 4 through 6 talk about Jesus being qualified to be our priest and how the Father handles that. But for our purposes, those are all important ideas, good for another conversation. But for our purposes, we really want to land on verse 7 because this keeps us going in what Jesus does for us as our high priest. And I think there's an element of mystery in it as it relates, I think, to Gethsemane. So, Elisa, would you read verse 7? Okay, Hebrews 5, 7. In the days of his flesh, and this is Jesus, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Okay, now, some people think that that's looking at the cross, and they see it reflecting Psalm 22 on the cross. And, and I really wouldn't argue against that very hard. But when it talks about prayers and supplications and tears from Jesus in his earthly experience, my mind goes to Gethsemane. Uh-huh. And in a sense, that presents a little bit of a problem because it says he was heard because of his piety. <laughs> but when we read the story, it doesn't seem like he was heard. Yeah, either one, whether it's my God, my God, why have you forsaken me on the cross? Or whether it's please take this cup in the garden. It doesn't yeah. seem like God heard either one because he definitely didn't respond in the way we would expect him to if he did. I might push back a little bit in the garden in Luke's version in chapter 22, verse 42 to 45, an angel is sent to strengthen mm-hmm. Jesus. And mm-hmm. I don't think angels just operate on their own, do they? That's a good point. And I think the problem is not that God didn't hear him. I think the problem is we have a rather off-base definition of what it means for God to hear us. When we pray, we only assume God hears us if we got what we wanted. Mm-hmm. We tend to identify God's hearing with the answer to the prayer the way we wanted it to be answered. Mm -hmm. But that's not the same thing as God hearing, is it? That's a good point, Bill. Yeah. And in this case, all you have to do is keep reading to realize that God was hearing and God was present. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I think in Gethsemane, and to your point, Daniel, where there was in Gethsemane or on the cross, in this sense, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one who was able to save him from death, and he was heard. That speaks of an experience of intense suffering mm-hmm. um, that prompts this kind of response from Jesus. And where I would like to bounce to see how we can respond to that and how we can see that impacting us directly is by Hebrews 2.18. Daniel, do you have that? Yeah. For since he himself was tempted in that which he suffered... He is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Okay. Since he also was tempted, and that goes back to what we saw earlier about his experience being a fully human experience, but even more because he took temptation and testing to the fullest level Hmm. of experience. He was tempted, but also specifically here, he was tempted in what he suffered. Hmm. And whether we're looking at the cross or Gethsemane, there is absolutely no doubt that there was intense suffering that was taking place there. Mm-hmm. And I'm echoing back to our other conversations about his sympathizing with us. Mm-hmm. You know, he was tempted and therefore he's able to come to the aid, which mm-hmm. really means he's able to sympathize and provide rescue for us. Yeah. So as we've been talking about this and we've seen maybe, in my opinion, It was Gethsemane, but as some scholars say, and as Daniel has already expressed, it could have been on the cross. But either way, Mm -hmm. in the midst of Jesus' suffering, there's this mysterious element of the Son crying out to the Father and how the Father chooses to respond to that. But in it all, because He suffered and suffered to extremities we would never understand, He's able to come to our aid when we suffer and are tempted. How does that phrase, come to our aid, hit you? It's incredibly hopeful. I mean, I need aid. Yeah, and I feel like so many of our conversations already in this series have been describing different ways in which Jesus comes to our aid, right? Like he's the Mm -hmm. representative of us before God. 
he knows what it's like to be fully human. And so he represents us really, really well, but he also is Mm -hmm. God and in God's presence. So he can represent us in ways that no earthly Mm -hmm. person could represent Mm us. And then this element of prayer and interceding. And then here, this element of even knowing what it's like to experience suffering, but not just suffering for the purpose of suffering, but suffering so that even that suffering becomes something that he uses to meet us where we're at and help us through. Mm. Mm. I think, Daniel, you're really onto something there because as we've been looking at this, think back to our very first conversation when we talked about the fact that we often think of Jesus in so many other roles, but not so much as a priest. And yet we ought to think more about him as our priest because this is our present tense reality. Hmm. And when we think about his sufferings, we think about his sufferings for our past sins and for our eternal home, right? Hmm. But here, what the writer of Hebrews is telling us is part of the reason for his sufferings was so he could help us in our present tense. Not just our past, not just our future, but our right now. Real time, yeah. Real time help Mm. from a real Savior who experienced in real life everything we do. And how he did that, there's all kinds of mystery bound up in that. But it's all with the result that because he did all that, he's able to come to our aid. And I love that term, come to our aid, because it's a very tender Greek word that means to run to the cry of a child. Mm-hmm. And that's what Jesus does. When we come to him with our mess and our brokenness, he runs to the cry of his child. And as our priest and as our friend, he gives us aid. You're at the Discover the Word table with Marty Hahn, Elisa Morgan, Bill Crowder, and Daniel Ryan Day. And I hope that conversation helped with that mystery that Bill sees in the section of the book of Hebrews that we're focusing on this episode called Jesus the Priest. Now, in this next segment that wraps up this study, there's kind of another head-scratcher that Hebrews emphasizes in relation to this. It's about obedience and how Jesus learned obedience. Jesus, God, having to learn to be obedient, and obedient to who? Well, several things about that that don't seem to make sense, so they'll talk about that after this word about where we'll go in our next podcast. This time of year, Christmas celebration is all around us. And so is Advent something your family or your church family celebrates? Are you familiar with what an Advent celebration is? Well, next time on the Discover the Word podcast, the group talks about the adventure of Advent. Families can do this. Individuals can do this. So maybe you want to enter Christmas this year with a new practice that helps you remember God's faithfulness. One of the things that's filled me with hope and joy and peace and a lot of the terms that show up this time of year, one of the beautiful things about looking back and remembering that God promised a Messiah would come and then kept his promise as we look forward to Jesus coming again, it's like, hey, that same God that was faithful then, that's the God that we're trusting in, that Jesus is going to come back. Mm -hmm. Yeah, how an Advent wreath and lighting the five candles of Advent over the next few weeks can help us look back to look forward in our celebration of Christmas this year. The Adventure of Advent on the next Discover the Word podcast. And now, the conclusion of a study in the New Testament book of Hebrews about Jesus the priest. When you were a child, would you have said that you were an obedient child? (laughs) You know, when I was the firstborn, and I I think I was. Mm -hmm. Were you? Not as an adult, but as a child I was. <laughs> you were a really good kid who became a rebellious adult. You, gypped, you skipped the whole teenage years, right? <laughs> I feel like the only allowable answer to that question is, I guess you'd have to ask my mom. Oh, that's good. <laughs> but I too was a firstborn and think that I was pretty obedient as well. Mm-hmm. And I see that in my firstborn as well. There's like a different level of sensitivity to mom and dad's expectations, I think. Mm -hmm. Well, I was a middle born and I kind of was fighting for firstborn authority. But you know what, when I look really honestly, and of course, this is with adult eyes, I think I was a pleaser 
more than obedient. Okay. I was a pleaser. You know, what's going to work here? And there's a difference between being a pleaser and being obedient. And yeah. I think the pleaser comes out of, I don't know, shortcutting and kind yeah. of fear. But I think yeah. true obedience comes out of love and respect. Yeah. And yeah. I don't think I was there. I was also a second born. And that meant that I could learn from the mistakes of the firstborn. <laughs> so I kind of learned where the pain was just from watching my older sister, Linda, a little bit. But as obedience took place, did it come to you naturally or is it something you had to learn? <laughs> I mean, I think my parents' discipline would say that I needed to learn it, uh, <laughs> but I'd like to think it came very naturally. <laughs> so once again, I, we need to ask your mom. <laughs> yeah. I totally had to learn it. You know, I think I just, I watched the cues, mm -hmm. you know, again, being a pleaser, I watched the cues. What's going to work mm -hmm. here? Mm -hmm. Obedience is a really tricky thing. And it's something that on Discover the Word, we've talked about from time to time, because even within the realm of Christendom, however you want to describe it, there are so many ways to approach obedience, even as it relates to obedience to God. And not all of them are totally healthy, right? I mean, right. some of them are actually totally unhealthy. Obedience is a tricky thing. Yeah, especially in the church, there's been so many examples of what has been coined later as spiritual abuse, where you have leaders mm -hmm. in churches that will do what I say because I'm the voice of God, or do what I say because I understand what God mm -hmm. wants or what you should do. And mm -hmm. And there's so many examples of that brokenness. And we can also slip into a, you know, a real works mentality, mm -hmm. thinking that we're earning our salvation by doing it right. And we can be dependent upon ourselves and totally miss our need for grace. Or even just earning God's favor. Sure. Right? Like it, by doing the right things, then God gives me good things. And sure. if I do the wrong things, then God gives me bad things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think Jesus actually gave us some clarity on this when he said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Obedience is not to be done out of routine. Obedience is not to be done out of fear. Obedience is not to be done out of oppression. Mm -hmm. Obedience is a response of love to the one who gave himself for us. Mm -hmm. And as a follower of Christ, when it comes to the things uh, that we're given in the scriptures, where there are expectations of what our lives should look like, it's so easy to fall into the traps of saying, well, I'm going to be obedient because I want God to answer my prayers, or I want to be obedient because if I don't, then I'll look bad to the other people around me. But Jesus makes it very clear. The only real proper motive for obedience is as a, a loving response to his love for us, right? Mm, yeah. yeah. Now, we talked about do we need to learn obedience, and I think... We would all agree that to some level or another we had to, whether we choose to really want to admit it or not. What becomes very surprising is when we see that Jesus himself had to learn obedience. The question is, did he have to learn obedience in the same way we learn obedience, though? That is the right response, Mart. Thank you for bailing me out on that so I didn't say the wrong thing. <laughs> we want to look in our final conversation. We've been looking all through these discussions on Jesus as our priest, and for me— there's just been a lot of really eye-opening stuff here, and I hope there has been for you as well. Mm. But what are the things we've seen to this point before we come to this final conversation? Well, we've started out talking about Jesus as our priest, which is a familiar concept to some in Christendom and an unfamiliar concept yeah. to others. And so I really have appreciated drawing up close to the understanding that as, you know, Jesus is our mediator before the Father, that because he has made access possible, immediate access to the Father, we also have access mm -hmm. through Jesus. I love that. Love focusing on that. Good. Yeah, it's all about us. He's there for us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so much of the scriptures is all about God mm -hmm. and what he's doing, what he's accomplishing. But one of the things we've been seeing through all these conversations is every single one of these things that Jesus did had implications for us. And so many of the things that he experienced, what we've been learning in these conversations is that part of the reason that he experienced those things was to be able to relate to us on even more personal and deep level, whether it was temptation um, or whether in our last conversation, it was the very suffering that he experienced allows him to sympathize with our sufferings in ways that are unheard of for the idea of a God, a God who suffered mm -hmm. and as a result can lead us through suffering. Yeah. And don't you think it's only when we begin to understand what he has done and does in our behalf that obedience makes any sense? Yeah, mm -hmm. that's right. Otherwise, it's just empty religion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
And that was the very thing Jesus was combating in the first century because for many, and we can't say for everybody because there were faithful ones, but for many in the first century in Judaism, religion had become a very mechanical, mindless thing. And Jesus all of a sudden makes it intensely personal and intimate again. Of all of the things that he did, maybe the one that is the most shocking is the one that's found in Hebrews 5, verses 8 through 10. So, Mark, uh, would you read Hebrews 5, 8 through 10 for us? Okay, verse 8. Even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. In this way, God qualified him as a perfect high priest, and he became the source of eternal salvation for all those who obey him. And God designated him to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Yeah. Now, it's interesting. Somebody with a different translation, read verse 8 for us. I have the NRSV. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And that's where the confusion comes to. Is yeah. Not only did he have to learn obedience, but he had to be made perfect, huh? Mm-hmm. What, what? Yeah, and that's where Mark's translation is so helpful mm-hmm. because the word made perfect really means made qualified. Okay. There's a sense of uh, he fulfilled the requirements. Therefore, he was able to take on this role. Mm-hmm. I can tell you, for all my years studying the book of Hebrews, the hardest thing to help people get their minds around is if Jesus was God, why did he have to be made perfect? Hmm. Well, that's not the actual idea of the word. He needed to be made qualified. And how could he be made qualified? He had to have human experience (laughs) so that he could represent us to his father. And he had that human experience on our behalf And in the process, he learned obedience. Now, let's wrestle with that idea, too. Can I just ask, so I tend to think that these verses mean that he had to be made more godly, but you're emphasizing that he had to be legitimized human Mm. in our experience, which is so much easier to swallow for Mm -hmm. me. And that word perfect also brings with it like a sense of wholeness, like completeness. And so for Jesus' complete experience as humanity, right? Mm -hmm. His complete experience as both God and man this is what's happening in this section okay. too. And as we've talked about Jesus as our priest throughout these conversations, we've talked so much about how, yes, Jesus is suffering and his experience, especially on the cross and in the passion, paid for our sins. And his role as high priest takes care of us now. But now finally here at the end, we see the eternal future played before us because he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. He was able to do that. Why? Because he was qualified to. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So when you hear that idea, it's interesting. The first hearers would have been given a little memory device to lock this in for them so that after they heard the letter, they would have been good. Because the phrase he learned from the things that he suffered is a play on words in the Greek. The he learned is the Greek word imathen. And the he suffered is the Greek word empathen. So empathen, empathen. And so the writer's giving them a little mental hook to remember. Listen, listen. He learned. And he learned through his suffering. And because of that, he is qualified to offer you a salvation that takes care of your past sins, your present needs, and your eternal future. Hmm. That's the kind of high priest we have in Jesus. Can I ask another question? We've been talking about our surprise that he learned obedience. But in verse 9, it says he became to all those who obey him Mm -hmm. the source of eternal salvation. So there's another layer of obedience on our part. Mm -hmm. And so how do we unpack that? Well, remember, we talked about sympathy being common feelings. And the common feelings that we share is shared experiences of suffering. So just as Jesus suffered and we suffer... And Jesus obeyed, we learn to obey through him. And that package of ideas, I think, is what the writer is telling him. Hang in there. Jesus is enough for you. Remember, we saw in our very first conversation, these were people who were persecuted, who were under stress, who were on the verge of abandoning the faith. And the writer's saying is, wait a minute, you can hang on. (laughs) Not in your own strength, but through this high priest who has suffered what you suffer, who has felt what you feel, 
who understands what you're experiencing and who is enough to help you move through it. Hang in there. Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. What a great way to end this episode of the Discover the Word podcast titled Jesus the Priest. Thank you, Bill, for leading us through these discussions. You're at the table with Mark Hahn, Elisa Morgan, Bill Crowder, and Daniel Ryan Day. Discover the Word is a small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries in Grand Rapids, Michigan, in which we invite you to walk with us through topics and passages that inform the way we read the scriptures, challenge us as we live our lives as followers of Christ, and always point us to discover Jesus in the pages of the Bible. Encourage you to explore other studies with the group on our discovertheword.org website. Now, our mission and all we do here at Discover the Word and Our Daily Bread Ministries is to make the life-changing story and wisdom of the Bible understandable and accessible to people all around the world. And if you'd like to come alongside and partner with us in this ministry, we invite you to lend your financial support. Simply go online to discovertheword.org and click the Donate button. You'll see some options and you can give right there. Thanks for listening. I'm Brian Hedinga. Discover the Word is provided by Our Daily Bread Ministries.